This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. The National Park System was established in 1916, but how much do we know about it? Rediscovering and exploring our national park system is the topic of today's show. Join us for a conversation with noted authors Audrey and Frank Peterman, whose most recent book, Legacy on the Land, explores our national park system. Marcus and I will be back in a moment. Again, this is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters, and as always, I'm glad to be joined by you all in the audience and always glad to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. Uh, it, I need all the help I can get, Marcus. <laughs> Me too. It's great to be here. It is. So how are things going? We're back here again for another conversation. Yeah, pretty good. I'm really excited yeah. to, to have this conversation today. Um, I'm, I, it reminds me of, um, of an experience I had as a very young boy visiting um, the Yosemite National Park as well as the Sequoia National Park um, and so I, I kind of want to sort of revisit that experience right. in, a, in a much more focused way today. So, it is. Yeah. I was thinking about as we were uh, preparing for this show and we're going to talk about the National Park System and public mm-hmm. lands I you know, I can help but think uh, back in uh, just 2008 I think mm-hmm. uh, George W. Bush when he was president uh, during National Park Week he made a statement which I think is important and, and re, uh, I think kind of captures what we'll be talking about in some ways here but during that National Park Week back in 2008, he issued a statement, and in that statement, he actually said, "Our national parks belong to all of us, and they are our nat- they are natural places to learn, exercise, volunteer, spend time with family and friends, and enjoy the magnificent beauty of our great land." And I think that is true. But sometimes we forget. I think uh, living in urban spaces, just how rich the national park system is, the public lands are, and I think that we forget the kind of get out there and then re-engage nature. And I think it's also important to remember that, you know, the, the, the federal acquisition of these lands required some, some folks to be displaced. Yeah, that's true. Um, and oftentimes that history doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't acknowledged in the way that it should be. That's um, right. So it's important to remember that. Well, you know, you think about the larger narrative of mm-hmm. American history here, uh, you and I can't help but think about that. And I think about how, you know, when I'm in the western part of our state, you know, I think about the Pisgah National Forest, Absolutely. which is here, which was a part of the Biltmore State at one time. And, you know, George Vanderbilt's efforts to to sell off a large portion of Biltmore Estate to the federal government to create the Pisgah National Forest and how much I enjoy it now, even if you go over to Biltmore State and how so much of the natural beauty of that space has been preserved. I mean, it's like a, it's a place where I go and I'm kind of rejuvenated uh, mm-hmm. when, when I'm there. But I think about um, further out in Cherokee in that area and to think about so much of that land belong to the Native American uh, peoples of this, uh, the indigenous peoples of this country. And you talk about displacement and you can't help think about uh, the number of people who were displaced in this, uh, in the larger story about uh, the unfolding of American history. Yeah, you can. And, and, and I wonder if, if some of these natural, these natural spaces, these, these national parks um, are, not, are now serving um, within sort of the American imagination as, as natural spaces that have a certain kind of, that have a kind of sacred quality mm-hmm. uh, to them. We'll have to see. But, That's um, true. But, but oftentimes um, these parks aren't, aren't discussed um, in, as, as sacred spaces, but rather as sort of, sort of national mm-hmm. preserves, right. uh, which, which the, the American citizenry should, should enjoy and learn from. So yes. that's an interesting 
topic to consider it, as we it move is, along. It is, and it is. You know, we mm-hmm. pointed out in the opening that the system, the National Park System, was created in 1916. Mm-hmm. And I'm always going back as a historian to look at these dates, these origin dates, and mm-hmm. uh, the efforts of to create the system and to preserve it. And at that time, there were, I mean, the Woodrow Wilson was the president of the United States when he when he signed that act into law, uh, creating 35 national parks at the time. And the system now comprises more than 400 acres, four, more than 400 acres, uh, 400, uh, comprises more than 400 areas, uh, 84 million acres in 50 states and territories. I think it's much bigger than that. But it also includes historic sites. And I'm always interested mm. in talking about historic sites. I mean, here in Western North Carolina, we have Carl Sandburg, uh, home, uh, which is here, which has a long, long history right. in the American South. You know, as someone who studies African-American history, I'm always interested in these African-American historic sites. Um, mm-hmm. Here in Western North Carolina, I think there are major efforts to preserve uh, Nina Simone's birthplace, mm-hmm. and you've been there. The efforts at that, um, I think about Frederick Douglass. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about Frederick Douglass a lot, and his his home in uh, Washington D.C. The D.C. area is a part of the national park system. These these are are important places that I, you know, I enjoy going back just to visit these spaces. Mm-hmm. And, and and speaking of historic sites, you know, um, we can talk about the Sequoia National Park mm-hmm. as 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 a historic African American site. Why? Because the Buffalo Soldiers played a major role in making this park possible right. um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Right. So there are some historical connections connections here to be made that I think are that will yeah. I, I think will interest our listeners. And I think our guests today are going to get into some of that and Definitely. the work that they've been doing. Very important work mm-hmm. uh, to help us to re-engage the national park system, to enjoy the system, and um, and to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm looking forward to the conversation with the Petermans and to talk about the work that they're doing to talk about their new book and we want you all to stay with us here in the audience and Marcus and I will be right back with our guest. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. Again, I'm Darren Waters here at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. We're glad to have you all join us again. As we, as you all were listening in the first segment, we were talking, we're, we are talking today about the, our national park system, and we have two wonderful guests here in the off, in the in the studio with us to talk to us about their new work, the work that they've been doing, I think, just over the the length of their career. But they have a new book. Uh, Frank and Audrey Peterman are here, uh, are our guests today. Their new book uh, is is out, and we encourage you all to get that book and to uh, pick it up called Legacy on the Land, and it explores uh, our national park system and encourages us to get to re-engage that system. But just a word about uh, Frank and Audrey. They are the founders of Earthwise Production, um, an organization that for the past 20 years uh, has provided consulting and training services to public land managers, uh, conservation organizations, and others seeking to gain market share in earth urban communities and I'm looking forward to this ta- hearing Absolutely. them talk about their relationship with urban communities mm-hmm. I mean, because we we have uh, had guests here before who are kind of connecting with uh, trying to connect uh, members of the urban community with with our public lands um, they are also the founders uh, and directors of legacy on the land which promotes their work uh, to build greater awareness about our great national parks especially in urban communities of color They're 
their most recent book, as we noted, again, is Legacy on the Land. A black couple discovers our national inheritance and tells why every American should care. That is the longer title of that book. And you can find out more about their work and get their book if you go to, I'm sure if you go to Amazon, you can get it there. <laughs> you can also get it from their website, which is Legacy on the, on the Land, one word, LegacyOnTheLand.com. And we're delighted to have them join us today. So thank you all, Frank and Audrey, Thanks for so being much. here. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you. So you're here in Asheville. I know that you will later on. You'll be visiting the university. Uh, so how have you found? How was your trip here? Magnificent. Already mind-blowing because this morning we had the opportunity to go and visit the Carl Sandberg House. And it was my 184th unit of the National Park System that I visited from Alaska to the Virgin Islands. It was a phenomenal experience. I didn't even know anything about Carl Sandberg, and I had no idea that he had such a passion for equality and wrote so lyrically and beautifully and powerfully right. about the need for equality and the need for shared opportunities in America. Yeah, his work is, has been uh, brilliant work, and especially his, book, his work on Abraham Lincoln as well as the right. author of Abraham Lincoln. And that, that site out there has a uh, deep, deep history, and I hope that many pe members of our audience have had a chance to go out there and, and visit. Frank? They should go there right. just to get a taste of his humanity. He, mm -hmm. I think most people don't understand that he was far ahead of his time in terms of race relations, in terms of social justice, and in fact, he was a socialist. They do not like to uh, advertise that, but he was a committed socialist. <laughs> oh, so Frank, I, I have to ask you this question because I've toured, I've toured the home out there, and there is a picture with uh, Eugene Debs. Mm -hmm. Did you did you see the picture? No, I missed that. It's, see, it's interesting when you think about it because that picture is um it's kind of hidden back up. Yeah, you know, if you go into the front room of the house, and it's interesting, but he did. He had a very close relationship wow. with Eugene wow. Debs. Mm, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, we're, thanks so much for coming. Uh, so, we want to start with talking about your book, Legacy on the Land. Uh, can you talk about the genesis of this book? Um, how did it start? Um, what's the story behind the book? Well, Frank and I took the opportunity in 1995 hmm. to drive around the entire United States of America from wow. the Atlantic to the Pacific. And our goal really was just to see highlights like the Grand Canyon, mm -hmm. Yellowstone and Yosemite, places we'd heard about, you know, but um, how many black people have been to those places? Right. Not mm -hmm. that many, right? Mm -hmm. So Frank suggested that we take a couple of months out of our lives and just drive around the country and see these gorgeous places that so many foreigners come here to see, but most Americans never see, and particularly not African-Americans. And oh my goodness, there's another world outside the city limits. There's another world that looks just like heaven or my concept of heaven. And certainly when I experienced that, from coast to coast, I wanted desperately and urgently to communicate that with every other person, every other American, and particularly non-white Americans who we did not see represented in the park right. system at that time. Yeah. And I think the backstory to this, though, is that uh, we were at a point where our last daughter was in uh, the University of Florida, graduating, and we had to decide with the empty nest syndrome, what, what, what do we do next? <laughs> and so uh, I went to Belize. Uh, I told her that I woke up, I saw a program, and it was talking about the Belizeans' right. uh, dedication to the earth, to the environment, 
and they were saying the best thing they had to give their kids was the land. Mm-hmm. I was impressed by that. Right. So I, we went to Belize and spent a month there uh, and fell in love. But the last day I was there, I was having a drink, if I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a young a Belizean asked me, well, what does the Badlands look like? I don't know, because he was getting these cowboy movies that was featured in all of these places out west. Right, right. And as he would ask me about the Grand Canyon, the Badlands, and I would have, I said, I don't know. No. That's when I said to her, before we were thinking about opening a bed and breakfast in Belize, but, and I said to my wife, before we do that, we need to discover our own country, because right. it would be awfully embarrassing to have people in our place asking us about American iconic places, and we had no idea what they looked right. like. You yeah. know, as I was kind of studying your, your your work, I couldn't help but think, you know, as a kid when we were growing up, uh, and the song that we used to sing, This Land is Our Land, yes. This Land is Your Land, that, yes. that song was kind of just going through my mind mm-hmm. as I was thinking about it. And we really do, you know, it's important that we know our own our own space. And, 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 and so, Audrey and Frank, I'm, I'm struck by a point that you made earlier that uh, that most people of color, African-Americans in particular, have not seen these iconic American landscapes. Can you talk a little bit about your sense of why that is the case, especially given, you know, the deep history of African-Americans um, within the sort of natural geographic space of, of North America? That's true. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I would also add to Marcus's question in, in, as you answer it. Why is it important, you know, right. for for right. for us to to engage it and get to know these spaces? Yes. Well, One of the benefits of having been in this space and doing this work for the last 22 years is that we have some institutional memory. And when we started in 1995 and we talked to African-Americans about the national parks or even going out and camping and hiking in the woods, people were like, are you crazy? In fact, when we were on our trip, people, two two sets of Frank's friends actually brought out their collections of guns and said, which one are you taking? Because the idea of going out in the woods without a gun was just like ridiculous. These people, you know, I'm from Jamaica, so I don't have a history with the civil rights movement or prior to that. But they know that Frank does, and he knows the kind of things that happened here. So he was like, there's no way you're going to take your wife out there, and white people are not going to accept you, and you're not going to have a way to defend yourself. Frank was like, you know, I'm an American. I'm going to see my country. I don't need to defend myself. And so we, we, never, we never even really conceptualized taking a weapon. But many African-Americans have said to us that they don't feel that those places would be welcoming to them. They don't know where those places are. They don't know what they're about. And they don't really see the relevance to their lives. And so we have spent the last 22 years working to establish the relevance and to, and to lay out in paper that these places are intimately related to us and in fact it is because of us that some of them exist as you mentioned with um sequoia national park and part of the reason was i absolutely to be quite honest was fear yeah uh because many of the atrocious things that happen to african-americans are happen out in the woods mm-hmm. however people overlook the fact that there were lynchings in cities from light poles too yeah. right. okay but we because of movies like deliverance Mm-hmm. We make this connection of the, of the hot doors being a dangerous place with, you know, all kind of people there. <laughs> yeah. the, other, the other reason uh, to, to address the point of why it's important, our history is there. Yes. Right. I'm walking down the streets of Skagway, Alaska, 
And what do I see but a monument to the Buffalo Soldiers? Mm. I'm all way out in western Texas. What do I see the Buffalo Soldiers? They were all over the place creating a safe environment for white people. (laughs) Precisely what was happening. Uh, So it it is part of our history. You cannot virtually go to a national park, and there's not some bit of that park that African Americans had something to do with in that area. So... First of all, is our history. Secondly, come a c- couple of weeks from now. April 15th. April 17th this year, I think. My birthday. They, they, they're not, mm. they're not going to reduce your taxes because you don't go to the park. <laughs> you pay for those parks. Mm, right. Mm. You pay for those parks every April. And therefore, you're like an absentee landlord. If you don't go and take a look at them, enjoy them, and make certain that they're protected. Lastly, the demographic shift in America that's happening with people of color. Mm. The problem will be if we do not educate the common majority, they will not care about the parks and they will disappear. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Frank, I can't help but think of the ongoing debate. You know, if we look at the two major parties in the Republican and Democratic Party, and not to get too political here, but the ongoing debate about uh, allowing access to some of these public lands for development purposes. I think Anwar uh, it was one of the last places that was um, where you heard major discussions about that. You've got the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, we've had one guest in here um who not too long ago talked about being out in South Dakota uh, in the protest efforts there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how you talked about your time in Belize and how the land is seen as almost like a living thing. And it is we, a living thing. Yes. It is the only living thing. And we We're seem all to have lost that. that here. All right. Uh, well, I think what has happened here are several things. One, of course, there is the people who believe in unrelented capitalism. <laughs> and secondly, people who, and, and I'm, I believe in capitalism, but I think it has to be regulated because an Absolutely. animal left alone will eat up everything. Right. Then there are the people who see the land as utility, as something to be consumed, mm-hmm. and they have no respect for it. And then there are the rest of us who really see the land as sacred, even, and I mean sacred, as our mother, as the place that we depend on to have the next generation live through. And therefore, we have to make absolutely certain that we leave it intact so as not to have all kind of environmental problems, diseases, and destruction. You know, you brought brought up a number of topics here, uh, capitalism. Um, These are things that we discuss on Mm -hmm. a, a regular basis. And I'm gonna I'm gonna let my brother here take this over in just a second, but I have to insert something in here for just good measure, um, and this is particularly for our director, um, who probably <laughs> will not have a good day if he does not hear me mention the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. You know? uh, yeah. And you Traveling know, in many of the the things that you were talking about here, Alexis de Tocqueville talked about how Americans seem to be so geared towards a capitalist a capitalist experience and in enterprise that we. Take tend to forget the the beauty of the land we mm-hmm. tend to forget you know why it's important that it is preserved so mm-hmm. i i really appreciate the last the last comments that that you made yeah so do i and and i have to say this quickly before we move on um so so i, I study african indigenous religion so that's my area of research and when i began studying studying these traditions the first thing that i learned about was land 
right the the role that land plays in how these and how these religious systems make sense of what it means to be human right so what it means to be human is bound up in the land which is seen as a, which is which is seen as a sort of a living thing uh that we have to um to to demonstrate reverence towards so i definitely resonate with with with, with much of what um uh, you're saying. Um, so we mentioned earlier uh, a little bit about um, the role that African-American history has played in the preservation of, of some of these national parks. Can you share a, a few um, specific stories uh, that sort of illustrate this intersection between African-American history and, and, and the national parks? Oh, can uh, I tell my favorite uh, one or do you want to say? <laughs> uh, Parson Brown, Parson yeah. Jones, mm-hmm. you go. Okay. Yes. So did you know that in uh, Florida, there's a park named Biscayne National Park. It's one of the largest, I think it is the largest marine park in the national park system. And Biscayne National Park came to us courtesy of the African-American family, the Joneses. Parson Jones, the father, was born in... North Carolina. And, yes, and he was enslaved. Right. And then at, after emancipation, he moved to Florida and worked with his hands... Well. He now moved to Wilmington, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. Okay. And yes, he and got, became he a boat right. Quite proficient. Do you know what years those were? I, I, I think they're in the book. It should be on okay. the park's website as okay. well. Okay. Yes, our friend Dr. Finney did a, a study on it. But anyway, he succeeded in amassing an amount of money and he bought an island in Biscayne Bay hmm. in 1897. Now, who knew that any black people in America were owning islands in 1897, right? Right. And then um, he bought an, a second island, a second key, and, uh, and eventually half of another. So he owned two islands and a half. And um, he had a family, two sons. Um, he named them. He named them after the Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur Jones and Sir Lancelot Jones, in the um, expectation that if he gave them lofty names, they would do lofty deeds. And in fact, they did the loftiest deed of all. When in the 1970s, the last surviving here, um, Sir Lancelot Jones, who still lived on the island, was approached by real estate developers who wanted to buy up all the little keys in the area and create another Miami Beach, and he said no. This far and no further shall you go because people have to have a place where they can be in the heart of nature. And he resisted all their blandishments and sold his land at a loss to the national park system, hence leading to the creation of... Biscayne National Park. And so many people don't know that story, but it is one of the seminal stories of the national park system. And to show you why we have to reach out to communities, the first black mayor of Miami at Range, when we told her about that story she and brought cried. it up, she's tears, she's, I've been in Miami all my life and I, I never knew know. the story. Yeah. So that is why it's important that we get wow. these stories out and let people understand that we've made major contributions to uh to the uh, national park system. This is amazing, and I and I think here, you know, uh, time moves so fast when we we're having great conversations. Mm-hmm. But I think about here, you know, Frank, your career. You've worked with uh, the Congressional Black Caucus um, mm-hmm. on this. How are they helping to support this effort? They've been very supportive. Everything that we've ever asked them to do, and and I have to say, your sister state uh, uh, representative Clyburn has been an outstanding yes. uh, supporter yes. of, of of the effort. Uh, but you know, there's only so far they can go if they don't get the support of the 
of the entire Congress on various issues. But so far as supporting our efforts, they have been 100%. And I want to make a point in that the the chair of the um, Senate Committee on Natural Resources, Lisa Murkowski Mm -hmm. from Alaska, I think the League of Conservation Voters gives her like a and her voting record is less than 10% pro-environment. And among the Congressional Black Caucus, we have people in the high 90s. So their support is outstanding. Yes. And And that is not known in their communities, though. And and I was wondering how well we, uh, as voters in in these individual communities, know how committed the Congressional Black Caucus Mm -hmm. is to to preservation. Well, I have to make a... Sure. a negative point that I, but I think in the interest of truth, we have to be straightforward. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Congressional Black Congress do not bring this as an issue because the constituents don't want to talk about that. Wow. They want to talk about education, crime, mm-hmm. and health. Mm-hmm. They don't, so there has to be some educate, educating of the constituency mm-hmm. before they can really step out. Right. On it as a major, they vote the right way, but they do not talk about it back home. Right, yeah. which leads me to want to ask uh, you all to say something about the early experience you had with the land and how, how did that ex- did that early experience play a role in the, your commitment um, oh. to sort of to working towards not not only the preservation of 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 of, of natural. Um, um, spaces in North America, but also in building connections between people of color in these spaces? Uh, it certainly, my early experience certainly uh, had a, an effect. I think I had no choice but to be an environment and a conservationist mm-hmm. because when I was two years old, I was fathering my grandfather down in the woods in the springs. He, you know, from Alabama, in Alabama. My father, who uh, was a manager of orange groves, and he would not take an orange grove unless the owner allowed him to set aside a certain portion for the, and for the animals because he said it was a biblical injunction mm-hmm. that said that when you took away land from the natural environment you and for farming, you had to leave a portion of the product for the animals that had been on that land right, before. Right. So with that kind of background, I, I, I never thought about it one way or the other. I just saw the earth as a place that need to be protected and that we had to be very careful how we treated earth because when you step on a blade of grass you don't know how long it will take it to come back back up all right (laughs) and i think you know time has gone by so fast and i think that uh mr and mrs peterman this is that's a good way to end it and i think as we as i've listened to this conversation just the power of stories and how we need to hear these stories to enable us to to reconnect with uh, spaces that we've we've lost connections with. So thank you again for the work Thanks that so you're much. doing, and thank you for being thank, here. Thank Marcus you for and I'll us. be back in a moment. Thank you thank for having you. Me. All right. Thank you. Okay. Well, again, thank you all for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation with Frank and Audrey Peterman to talk about the national park system, to talk about the history of African-Americans' relationship with these spaces. Uh, Marcus, as a historian, I appreciate the power of the stories that they were telling. You know, as a member of our audience know, I studied with Dr. John Hope Franklin, and the one thing he taught me to appreciate was the power of a story. And there's so many stories. And I think these stories really have the potential to overcome um, the sort of 
current African-American alienation um, from these spaces, which is ironic given given the deep history that our people have with these with right. these spaces. Right? So, so, so we learned about uh, Parson Jones and about the Buffalo Soldiers. And so I think we really have to begin to target this alienation and overcome it with stories. We do. Yeah. Well, this has been a beautiful conversation and we have enjoyed it. And Marcus and I again want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app, and on iTunes and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And listen to the podcast, and we look forward to joining you all again. And we want to thank Audrey and Frank for being here with us today. Thanks Thank so you. much. Take care. Thank you so much.